Welcome to the Tech Humanist Show, a multimedia format program exploring how data and technology shape the human experience. I'm your host, Kate O'Neill. This week, if we have a globally acknowledged framework, instead of reinventing the wheel and saying, like, what kind of future do we want and then what can technology do in that future, we have already a vision of the future we want or what we have to avoid and what we want to achieve. Why not integrate the whole tech discussion? Dorothea Bauer is a leading expert and advisor in Europe on ethics, responsibility, and sustainability across industries such as finance, technology, and beyond. Her PhD is in NGO business partnerships, and she's been active in research and projects around sustainable investment, corporate social responsibility, and increasingly, emerging technologies such as AI. She's been developing an audit system for contact tracing against the background of COVID-19 as a For Humanity Fellow. She's founder and owner of Bauer Consulting AG, and among her many distinctions, has been named as one of the 100 brilliant women in AI ethics. <laughs> there we go. Dorothea, you are live on the Tech Humanist Show. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm so glad you're here. I, I know that we have so much ground to cover because you're doing so much. Someone referred to you as a Wonder Woman on Twitter this morning. <laughs> Which is kind of uh, totally exaggerated. And I think she was more referred to herself. She would be the appropriate <laughs> one to carry the label. <laughs> I think she actually clarified that she definitely was not talking about herself. <laughs> but some yeah. of our listeners may not be as familiar with some of the acronyms and, and, and terms that we talked about. So mm -hmm. I wanted to just orient people in some of the areas of, of uh, work that you do. So Corporate Social Responsibility, CSR, talk us through a little bit about what that entails. And, and what some of the practices are in that. Yeah, corporate social responsibility is like one of the most used acronyms that actually describes all extra financial obligations and responsibilities of corporations. So it's not just social, actually, it also covers environmental responsibilities. You could also call it corporate sustainability or corporate responsibility. There are tons of terms that are used for the same thing. But it's important to know that this is basically what companies mostly take on voluntarily what you know what they commit themselves to but it's not pure philanthropy okay. so for example they want they might want to give more transparency on their supply chain that is legally mandated or they go beyond the minimum legal standards in some countries where the standards are very low etc so all of these like non-directly financial um, aspects of uh, corporate activities can be summarized by corporate social responsibility. That's yeah. really helpful. I'm sure that that'll help our, our watchers and listeners have uh, useful questions to, to ask. And then we talked also about ESG, so environmental, social, and governance investing. So help us understand what that term refers to. Yeah, ESG is basically the CSR of the <laughs> financial industry. <laughs> so it's a term that investors use to talk about non-financial aspects of their investments. So when nowadays BlackRock says we are promoting ESG investments, that means they don't just judge their investments based on expected return on investment, but they also take into account environmental and social and governance factors when they invest. So ESG is the buzzword among the financial community. And uh, and CSR is like the old term, like most of the business ethics uh, aspects of all corporations across industry. Now, I know you're also doing a lot around AI ethics and tech ethics, yes. too. Are you finding that these areas are starting to intersect more and more? They do. I think sometimes, you know, both can learn from each other also, especially because, you know, CSR. So my background is in business ethics. It's very theoretical. But the whole questions about legitimate business models, legitimate ways of making money, legitimate ways of distributing profit, um, ethical ways of treating your stakeholders or unethical ways. All these issues have been thoroughly discussed by the CSR community or the, in the business ethics context on a more theoretical or more practical level, depending on what you look at. And so a lot of these questions are kind of history repeating when it comes to the tech sector. The tech sector has some distinctive ethical challenges that have never been seen before, mm -hmm. such as the you know, the speed and the intransparency of uh, machine learning, etc. So that's distinctively new. But all those things about is this an okay way of doing money? Is this an okay way of treating our employees, our stakeholders and gig workers, etc.? 
those are questions that have been, I mean, discussed, but of course not resolved by the CSR community. But at least, you know, it's, I think these two fields can really uh, benefit from each other. Is it also the scale and the velocity of AI and, and tech that changes that conversation? Yeah, and it's also, you know, it's not just uh, technically a black box. I mean, machine learning and the algorithms are not just really a black box in a technical sense. It's also kind of deterring non-engineers to take a closer look because you feel like deterred by the whole jargon around it, which is needed, of course. It's a technical vocabulary. We cannot expect engineers to talk about, you know, you know, whatever soap bubble stuff, just to make it feel tangible or visible for us. But still, I think it's a, it's a double black box. It's, it's, a, it's a black box in the real technical sense of the world that you don't know what, you know what's being the input and the output or how the two relate. But it's also a black box like, oh, there's not much we can say about that. It's machines processing something, whereas other industries, it's more like, oh, there's a mining company, they have these and these mines with this kind of people working there, suffering from these problems and uh, causing so and so much emissions is much more tangible in other industries. So I think that makes AI a bit uh, evasive for us. <laughs> and, you know, there's this whole concept of AI for good and tech for good that's yeah. really kind of a hot topic or a trending hashtag yeah. at least, right? What do you make of those ideas as it applies to the work you see and do? Yeah, I know that in, in my bubble, I'm still, I think I move in a bubble, uh, online, etc. There is a lot of cynicism about these terms, but I think there is something generally good uh, to be gained from, you know, AI and from tech for good. That's more than just uh, ethics washing, my favorite pet peeve. You know, I, I really think that AI has huge potential to cause good, especially when it comes to environmental sustainability. So, for example, you know, the whole uh, problem of pattern recognition um, in machine learning where you feel like when it's applied to humans, it is, you know, full of biases and it kind of confuses correlation and causation and it is uh, violating privacy, etc. There are a lot of issues that you don't have when you use the same kind of technology in a natural science context, you know, where you mm -hmm. just observe patterns of, of, of oceans and, and clouds and whatever. Or when you when you try to control the extinction of species, I mean, animals don't have a need for or a right to privacy. So, uh, you know, why not use AI in contexts where it really, you know, doesn't violate anyone's um, moral rights? I think there are enough of enough use cases, and where you at the same time resolve a real problem. Those two are conditions for me for tech for good. Yeah, that's a really good distinction. And I, I talked with um, Yale's Forestry and Sustainability Program last year, and I, I felt like that was a lot of the discussion there, too, is that there's so much yeah. data to be harnessed about naturally occur occurring yeah. phenomena and be able to impact human life on the other side of that process yeah. as you know, opposed to tracking humans. Justified, right. Where the emissions are justified, not just for some nonsense uh, algorithm, whatever, predicting something you don't really want to know and, and overriding my rights, etc., and and so I think there's really there's plenty of stuff to do. The the problem is of course um how to make money of it. Of course I mean I can't just talk about the AI for good without you know thinking about the monetary aspects. Well, and you're a uniquely qualified person to talk about that. So it it does kind of come full circle, right? So you want you want to be able to have this CSR and ES conversation in the corporate space, uh, mm -hmm. and then the AI for good and tech for good discussion sort of emerges out of wanting that to scale and one of all, wanting all the, mm -hmm. the proposals to scale, mm -hmm. but then you have to bring it back around into this holistic CSR yeah. ESG model, right? So, yeah. so how do you reconcile all of that? How do you bring those into a holistic framework that actually makes sense? Well, it's not about reconciling, it's about being able to to just uh, tolerate the tension. <laughs> just <laughs> That's a great way to put there. it. <laughs> it's not always it's not always win win and it's uh, not not triple win as some people would say, like, you know, environment, uh, society and a business, they all win at once. Often it's about trade offs. But of course, you know, I think if you can make money with ESG and if you can make money with CSR, that's totally legitimate. That's great for you. Do it. But please also do it if you earn less money with it and if it does not pay off immediately anymore. So don't make your, your ethics dependent on the business case. But I mean, if you find a business case for ethics, 
go for it. Yeah. There's nothing bad about making money. I'm not talking about maximizing profit and making yourself a billionaire and giving your shareholders, I don't know, what kind of dividends and, and you know, totally losing all kind of uh, relation to, to the real problems in the world. But, you know, it's, it's not bad in itself to make money. But some business models are probably inherently more ethical and others are inherently less ethical or totally unethical. I mean, you can't bring, in my opinion... Uh, well, it's a dangerous field. What am I saying here? I'm like, <laughs> you know, it's 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 hard to bring ethics to a nuclear arms company. It's so hard to bring thing. ethics to certain areas, right? Yeah. I think you know you yeah. can you can maybe dodge that a little bit if you'd like. Yeah. But <laughs> I, <laughs> I want to give you an out. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Which <laughs> it feels like what you're really saying is that there are. Or if I'm interpreting correctly, that there are there are some approaches which are closer to solving real human problems, exactly. right? And and exactly. and they're closer to the human experience. They're closer to what you know genuine human needs are. And then there yeah. are other things that, that go wildly or far afield of yeah. that. Um, yeah, because you know, sorry. No, I was just gonna say most things are in the middle somehow. It seems like, yes. right? Yes. They are, and then you need to shift, you know, then you need to, t need to take some decisions and, and uh, you know, and, and you need to make trade-offs. But ideally, I'm the one pushing for trade-offs in favor of ethics, of course, without losing sight of the business reality. You know, one of the things that, that struck me as I was uh, looking over some notes and, and thinking about our conversation was the more I read up and kind of refreshed my thinking on ESG and CSR and kind of the, the evolution of those fields, the more it struck me that those fields evolved out of concern for, for labor, right? And for workers, mm -hmm. collectives and, mm -hmm. and labor power. And then of mm -hmm. course, when you start thinking about, you know, the emergence of AI and tech driven capacity, mm -hmm. it's an entirely different equation. So I mm -hmm. wondered if, if you would be able to, to speak to how do you maybe it's another case of just tolerating the tension as you said <laughs> earlier but how do you kind of make sense of the ESG and CSR models and and their concern mm -hmm. with labor and and workers mm -hmm. when we're looking at a completely different model of scale and capacity mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's uh, the the type of human factor that we're looking at changes and so the difference is if you look at heavily industrialized context, like uh, heavy manufacturing or like textile industry and all those, you know, tangible goods that are being produced. Of course, the rights we talk about are first like the human rights of labor, uh, health and safety, etc. So, but I mean, trade unions have become, have come out of fashion a while ago now. What I could observe from also all those sustainability reports, a lot of companies don't really like to talk about trade unions anymore. They, you know, they talk about human rights, etc. But the unionization is kind of has lost a bit, unfortunately, has lost a bit of uh, momentum. So and and so when we switch to AI, you think, oh, you're in the service industry. It's not labor intensive, etc. But the human factor is still there. Maybe not mainly as the well, certainly not the blue collar employee. At least not within the owned operations of tech companies. But uh, uh, and and maybe also not as many white collar employees um, in relation to their turnover as in other contexts. But there are a lot of people linked to the to tech companies or to AI. First of all, often invisible, we have those mm -hmm. ghost workers that they're called. You know the whole you know gig economy or like mm -hmm. people doing a very uh, low paid work of tagging. Uh, pictures uh, for, for to feed out to train alg um, data sets etc and and so there is a labor issue a classical one in or fact content moderation or the yeah, mechanical turk moderation. sort of thing yeah yeah, I mean, that's, those, yeah. right I mean that's a, that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a really a straightforward human rights case there they're just not so visible and you think oh, it's a pure service industry it's only like you know servers and you know one human taking care of hundred mm -hmm. servers etc but there are a lot more people linked in the supply chain you could say and also, moreover, affected by the technology, you know. So in textile, I'm not that affected by, you know, the, 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 the clothes I'm, wear, I'm wearing should not be toxic on my skin and, and, right. and that's it. The AI I'm using can violate my privacy. It can, you know, uh, the, the, the AI that is used on me, it can discriminate me. It can uh, make it impossible for me to get a mortgage, etc. So it's more the users or like the customers or the users, you say, that are in the focus, but it's still very much about humans. And at the same time, 
yeah, even though we think like, yeah, it's all like, you know, just uh, electricity, et cetera, you know, there's also sustainability, like the emission part of AI that's always like to emphasize there's also an environmental dimension. Yeah, and not to, yeah. not to mention, so I think it's a really important point about, you said the ghost workers and, and the many, many people who are involved in bringing scale to things that are dependent on, you know, sort of a gig economy infrastructure, but also the communities that are impacted. And that feels like it brings it right back around to the sustainability and the environmental discussion. Yeah. Right. Yes. Out of out of places where, let's say, you know, minerals are harvested for chips mm. or things like that. So that mm -hmm. must be part of, of the discussion at some level as well, I would imagine. Yeah, of course. I mean, the whole supply chain of the IT industry is also, you know, heavily based on minerals. And there are actually there are really interesting initiatives also by, by tech companies or like commodity companies that uh, specifically focus on the on the minerals or the metals that are you know in our computers like on on cobalt there is a new uh, transparency initiative a fair cobalt initiative that i just read about mm -hmm. so they are aware of this but if you look at you know where's the main focus it's more on on the output than on the input it's more like we, we call it like downstream than upstream but but of course i mean that's that's a huge issue like the rare earth discussion etc where and you get emissions those right that would be a, a, emissions as well it would seem like emissions emissions i mean honestly uh, you know uh, you know when i read like <laughs> how many emissions gpt3 <laughs> must have generated you know the training yeah. the the energy that we use for training gpt3 and i don't want to downplay gpt3 and i'm fascinated by what it is capable of but I'm not sure yet how long it takes until GPT-3 will save any human life. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's also you know the same about Bitcoin and all these like uh, technologies that 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 don't directly contribute to the real economy and and they use up so much energy. And even though the tech companies say, oh, we're going to be carbon neutral or even carbon negative. You know, as long as they, uh, you know, sell their cloud services to the fossil industry, uh, that's basically irrelevant. So, uh, yeah, there's this hypocrisy. And they say, we're, we're going to plant trees the size of, I don't know, Kazakhstan. And uh, good luck with that. <laughs> I, you just made me write a little note to remind myself to look into carbon offsetting this show. <laughs> it's definitely oh, yeah. some emissions. I'll help you. I'll help you. <laughs> okay, great. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Well, then, so so offsetting seems like it must be an enormous part of the discussion in in many parts of the industry. So corporate partnerships and foundations they they must yeah. be investing in carbon offsetting and, and other pro projects, and that feels like it's really needed. That's a, a an easy piece in some ways, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. I, I would imagine there may also be areas of concern there. Yeah, because I mean, offsetting is is a really good thing. It's good to know that, you know, there are ways to kind of uh, undo or like reduce, how you say, yeah, compensate for the carbon, yeah. for the emissions you generate. But the first question to ask should not be, can I offset it or how can I offset it? But it should be uh, like, uh, is what I'm doing, is it even necessary? So, I mean, let's say my favorite passion is to fly to Barcelona every other weekend just for fun, for party. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> instead of offsetting it, maybe I should stop doing it. <laughs> and, and, you know, the same for companies. I said, you know, uh, you know, the tech companies saying we're going to be carbon negative, but they make most money from totally unsustainable industries by selling their services to unsustainable industries. That's kind of a, yeah, a bit of a double-edged sword. It's also controversial, you know, the, what I always joke about, the amount of trees that have been promised to, to be planted. Right. Uh, I mean, I can't imagine, you know, I'm waiting, I'm waiting for the day when I look out of my window in the middle of the city and they start planting trees. Because so many trees have been promised. I think, like, the whole planet must be covered with trees. And the, yeah. the, the thing is, it takes decades until the tree you plant really turns into a carbon sink. So all that planting trees, mm, and then also saying like, oh, we're going to bring solar cookers to people in Africa. It's also, you know, a bit uh, latently colonialist attitude. So, you know, we we make it possible for you to cook in a clean way, but we dictate it to you. And yeah, so do you think it's not that, that easy. The, do you think the tree planting discourse is really shorthand though? It's like it's an easy way to convey to, or do you think it's a promise that's just never going to be delivered on? Yeah, no, it, it, it sounds nice, but there's also, I think there's some double accounting sometimes. Yeah. Like, to a certain 
countries are counted twice. <laughs> it's really it's easy to get the credit for uh, for planting a tree, but it's hard to verify the reduction you achieve because it takes such a long time. Right. And and so there are all these issues. So I think you know it's also interesting. EasyJet, for example, says, "Oh, we're going to offset uh, our emissions." And then you see they calculate, I think, $4 per emission ton of carbon that they emit to compensate. Okay. But Microsoft calculates $15 per ton that they emit. So you can imagine the difference that you can make with $4 per ton or $15 per ton. Yeah. That's huge. That's an yeah. enormous difference. Well, yeah. I imagine EasyJet is generating more than a few tons of yeah. <laughs> carbon. Yeah, well, recently have, they have slowed down a bit. <laughs> yeah, right, right, as we all have. You, you made me very yeah. uh, wistful when you talked about going to Barcelona for a party. Oh, well, uh, you know, we all have our dark sides. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I want to switch gears for just a moment and, and ask you about the contact tracing project. Speaking of the impact that, you know, COVID-19 yeah. has had on our lives in terms of, you know, keeping us from travel and things like that, What? how has that project project been to, to try to put some uh, audit, I think you're, you're working on auditing the process yeah. of, of contact tracing, yeah. or what is it uh, it's, exactly? It's a, it's a great initiative, it's by this not-for-profit organization called For Humanity, that is, that is led by Ryan Carrier, a guy from uh, East Coast, like uh, near New York, okay. and, and he has launched this organization and this whole project, and we're still working on it heavily, it's not, you know, it's not done yet, so on Monday I think we're going to release 2,000 lines of code, right. <laughs> so it's an audit system. Contact tracing, not just the digital one, but also the, the analog one, you know, the, the making phone calls, etc. And it covers basically five silos that we call silos. So it covers aspects related to, of course, to privacy, but also to bias, to cybersecurity, and to ethics, ethics, privacy, trust, bias, cybersecurity. So those five silos. And some questions are really technical you know how you know how is the data stored and what kind of protocol are you using and you know questions that i don't really understand because i'm not a, not a tech person or an engineer but there is also a lot of uh, as i said one issue one silo is trust like you know how, how is it enforced how transparent is it you know is this a uh, contact tracing system that you're using is it authorized by a public authority is it automatically downloaded? So these are all ethically relevant questions, you know. So uh, once we have that ready, that um, audit system, uh, we can basically, you know, implement it with authorities that use contact tracing and they, like an audit system, they can say, oh, yeah, we, we, have, we can certify that only these, these people have access to the data or that the data is only stored in an aggregate manner, etc. And so... Working on this has made me aware, well, aware, even more aware of the complexity of contact tracing. And, uh, you know, I'm so, you know, in my, my Swiss ivory tower where everything is like um, democratic and, <laughs> and directly democratic. So I was only aware, like, how many different facets of contact tracing systems there are and what could be, what, 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 could, what is possible with contact tracing when I joined that group. So we are now... I don't know how many people we are working on it, but we're still looking for more people and everyone can join. It's, you know, it's open for everyone to join. And it's a really, it's a really great initiative. So really, we'll try to include uh, that the URL yeah. uh, in, in the show notes. So, yeah. so I would imagine that there's a, there's some tech challenges and there. You mm -hmm. talked through some of those and, and there's mm -hmm. some human challenges, right? Mm -hmm. Like I, I think on some level, it feels like whenever this conversation comes up about contact tracing, everyone knows that that, or I shouldn't say everyone knows, a lot of people understand that that is a key managing the pandemic. Yet yes. it feels as if there's an awful lot of suspicion or yes. um, doubt yes. about how that data is going to be used and how safe it mm -hmm. is to participate in these programs. So mm -hmm. what, have, what have you learned about the, the tech challenges versus the human challenges and how do we overcome them? Yeah, I mean, I've learned that to relate, but <laughs> I cannot really answer the technical questions. You know, it's more about accuracy there so you know how much should the distance be between people etc for the signal to work and you know what is acceptable a false positive rate etc well that's also an ethical question of course mm -hmm. because you don't want to be notified every other day that you should quarantine yourself right uh, you know in a, uh, unjustifiably so but also interoperability what happens you know that what we have in europe now what happens if you go to another country so switzerland is not part of the eu 
So we are a part of the interoperability network that the EU has set up because we don't have disagreement with them. So so our app does not work in Germany, etc. So, but that's a price we pay for being stubbornly independent in quotes. So, and so so the, you know, all the technical questions and but also the human challenges, like you know how you how you ensure trust, what makes for a trustworthy system, and and one thing is of course technology. But what I can see in Switzerland and probably also in the U.S., you have these decentralized versions, you know, where it is clear that it is only stored on decentralized, on the gadgets, and that, uh, you know, the authorities don't have access to it. It's without location tracking, etc. And even though we have the most privacy-preserving technology that's possible, people still have heavy distrust, and it's not even... You know, the distrust that you might expect because we know that the whole decentralized technology depends on Google and Apple. It's not just a distrust towards tech companies, but it's just a general unease. And then I, sometimes I wonder, but these are just my thoughts, whether people just don't want to face the consequences of having the app on their phones because you know it's more interesting the question is what happens if you get notified is the quarantine forest is someone going to look whether you're really staying indoors are you going to be compensated for the loss in in in, in your wage while you're at home if you're a white collar worker you might continue to do your job at home that's the case in switzerland where you get paid and if you're a blue collar worker you're going to to lose your money so it's also creating very unequal incentives and moral hazards for different kinds of people and I sometimes I think I know you have a degree in German I think it's a stellvertreter discourse <laughs> the thing about privacy I'm sure you understand yeah. so I'm not sure our listeners do but <laughs> <laughs> some of them I know we have some German uh, viewers on yeah, right now we have some but I mean the stellvertreter discourse is like a a maneuver distraction it's not really hitting the point you know it's not really about privacy it's more about Am I willing to, you know, bear the consequences of 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 my actions? And and not just am I willing, am I also able to? Because mm -hmm. maybe I'm not able to protect myself from being exposed to the virus because I have right. to use public transport, etc. And I have duties. And and then am I able to? Am I financially able to lock myself in and maybe not earn money, etc. So I think the privacy is just the, the the lowest hanging fruit to focus on. Yeah. But uh, there is a lot more behind that. It's really challenging for the solidarity in all our communities, I think. It's a solidarity challenge. Yeah, it's yeah. such a fair set of questions to surface. And does it also bring you into, have, have you begun to have any discussions uh, through For Humanity or any of the work that you're doing around some of the proposed ideas around sort of immunity passports or theoretical ideas about what might happen as a next stage beyond yeah. these contact have, tracing I apps? Have, I have followed those debates a bit we haven't really discussed it in the context of for humanity yet or not as far as i know but it's just the immunity passports again it's it's this continuation or replication of uh, i mean uh, structural injustice mm -hmm. it's always along the same dividing lines in society kind of yeah and and you know it will those who are more vulnerable and more dependent will be more heavily affected and pay a higher price for not being immune or be forced to expose themselves as soon as they are immune, even though we don't know yet for how long immu immunity lasts, etc. So, you know, if you have plenty of space and money, you are better off in times of corona because you can keep a distance from other people and you can, you know, buy yourself out of the pandemic, basically, uh, mm -hmm. somehow. And that's, I think, so the same with contact tracing, very different implications for different people, immunity passports, and, and there is no quick technological fix. And also what I observe, you know, you can have the best technology in the world, you know, the best privacy preserving technology, and you can have the most democratic authorities in the world as we have in Switzerland. If these authorities are not, are not uh, you know, up to date with technology know-how, that's the case in Switzerland where they use fax machines, where they prefer fax machines over digital tools, right. you cannot use that technology in that totally analog context. So there needs to be a cultural fit for the technology to your authorities and the people who use yeah. the technology. 
It's like those governments are working with my landlord who insists on me yeah. faxing documents. <laughs> I don't know how recently, to fax. I, I recently I got, I got a CD for an x-ray. <laughs> like, what am I doing with the CD? Sorry. Why not the tape? <laughs> tape recorder. It's yeah, such so a it's weird really, time. And, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really a weird time because not only of, of the pandemic, but, you know, we're we've been in the midst of this multi-year digital transformation. I mean, it's been digital transformation has been a hot topic for so long anyway, but it feels like we have we were kind of in the throes of a, of a big push. And now it's a much bigger push. But what, what really strikes me about your perspective and your background is that you're in this very interesting position to be able to think systemically across a lot of different dimensions and not many yeah. people have that that perspective <laughs> no it's 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 nice i take it as a compliment but it's sometimes hard to frame so it's always <laughs> great to have a chance to really talk about these issues in depth <laughs> and how they relate in my opinion because these are you know they're connected and even contact tracing touches on or the pandemic touches on the whole question of welfare state and social security etc and and it's all kind and all kind of connected. So yeah. I really appreciate that chance. You know, it's been a theme of my work for the last couple of years that everything is connected and nothing yes. has proven it more than this pandemic. But I, I think even looking at, at your work, it's even more clear. Like when you talk about things like, you know, ghost workers and the local mm. economies, when you talk about, uh, you know, who's impacted across different mm -hmm. types of earners and, and people who are in different sort of class stratifications in society. Mm -hmm. And, and you, know, you have so many different lenses through which to look at this uh, yeah. with, with a lot of, of uh, credibility. So that, that's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that. You know, one, one thing I want to ask you is a, a question that I, I like to ask some guests now and then is when you think about technologies and we talked about tech for good and AI for good mm -hmm. and all this, but when you think about the technologies that you see on the horizon that mm -hmm. you see being developed and that are emerging, which ones of them strike you potentially as, as good for humanity, as, as a mm -hmm. boost to humanity? I'm really excited about technological developments in healthcare. So, uh, and also again, fascinating from an ethical perspective is that if you, you know, you talk about precision medicine, you get, you know, the, the right treatment based on all your specific characteristics and with the help of, you know, AI, this can be, uh, you know, patterns can be evaluated better. So there it's like a reverting of the ethical problem. It's like, it's a it's context where you want to be discriminated. Please discriminate me. I want you to take into account all my characteristics. I want you to know how many you know, veggie burgers I eat, I want you to know, you know, <laughs> how much I sleep, whatever I do, all my risk factors, etc. Because if this helps getting me to get the right treatment, uh, you know, I, I'm willing to lay it bare. So I think, you know, precision medicine uh, is going to be a really great uh, area, but also in medicine, we can read that. And I think that's true. I mean, that machine learning can help identify candidates for vaccines much faster, of course, always needs to be safe and reliable, and, and that's a problem of the black box and the intransparency sometimes. But so all of healthcare, and as I stated before, in sustainability, for example, I know recently, it's a bit quirky, but I like that stuff. I read about a challenge where um, coders were asked to develop, a, okay, I call it facial recognition for snakes. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> it's, not, not just a, it's not just the face of snakes, but, you know, the goal was to develop an app that, you know, you could take a picture. When you get bitten by a snake, you, mm. you take a picture and then the snake is automatically identified. So when you get to the hospital, you can say, this type of snake has bitten me because it's very important to identify the snake correctly to give you the right anti-venom. So, and this is so fascinating, you know, yeah. why, why waste our money and our emissions on facial recognition on people? I don't want to be recognized, please. But that snake doesn't care whether it is recognized. It has to be recognized even. And that's, you know, where you can use this machine learning for good. So all these, there are so many fascinating areas where it you also don't run into these ethical problems. It also strikes me that you're talking less about recognition in, in a, an identity sort of sense as yeah. you're talking about recognition in a, a pattern recognition sort of yeah, sense, right? Exactly. So it's pattern not important yeah. that it's yeah. snake Jane Doe versus snake John Doe. <laughs> it's not about Doe. blaming the snake. We're not going yeah. to blame you. <laughs> yeah, there yeah, might exactly. be a false positive, but it has no consequences for the snake. There's no it has culpability for the snake. <laughs> yes, yeah. No, no that's, a, that's a really interesting premise. And also the, the precision healthcare seems like such a, uh, an exciting idea because it does seem like there's at least 
when I think about American healthcare, and of course, you know, we're one of the most screwed up systems in the world in terms of the inequity of it. And we have so much richness in the system and it's so unavailable to so many. Mm-hmm. Yes. But but that potential seems like it could start to write some of that potentially, right? Like you could mm-hmm. you could be able to integrate uh, mm-hmm. what you know from one specialist and what you know from another specialist and no one ever has time or the capacity yes. to bring to a doctor and say, you know, here are all the things that are going on with me yeah. across this different health system and this different health system because you can't get doctors to talk to one yeah, another. Yeah. No, I think that's, you know, I always rant about democratizing AI because I, I, I find it a, a misuse of the term democracy because I'm a political scientist by training. So because it's such as like, well, what is it? Is it going to be participatory AI or self-legislating AI? But I, I you know, what people mean when they talk about democratizing AI is meaning that they make it accessible to people. And I think in healthcare, AI, it's not about democratizing AI, it's about democratizing healthcare. Because if you have some reliable programs that can, you know, do a radiologist's work partially, not fully substitute him or her, but partially, it means that it is much easier available for more people. So, so it lowers access barriers if you have this technology at scale. And of course, Again, there will be unfairness because some people will be able to still afford a human doctor. So people will say, oh, can you still afford a human doctor? So no, sorry, I have to take the AI. Of course, it, it will never be entirely fair. But I think there, it really, it is okay to talk about democratization for once. I accept it for once. Okay. So. <laughs> but you're being, being very specific about what it is that's being democratized. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is, yeah. That's a really important distinction too. And you also touched on something that reminded me of, you recently uh, tweeted about this notion of participation washing, yeah. right? And yeah. and the notion that you can't have participatory AI if what you're really talking about is, you know, people that are clicking on reCAPTCHA images that are uh, stop signs and that's no. just training AI. You know, you're distributing the work across a lot of random people and, yeah. their, and their human experience, but it's not really really making the AI any more democratized. It's not making that process no. any more of true participation. No. And, you know, it's like this, the, the ideal that I'm adhering to, like the human in the loop. I mean, these people, they are very human, but they're not humans in the loop. Because, right. you know, it's not like they really have a human impact and they're degraded to doing work and they're kept probably separately from each other so they will never unionize and they will never raise against their bosses so i mean it's it's like it's a, it's a very dehumanizing way of having humans in the loop it's like i guess adjacent yeah. to the loop or under the loop or yeah <laughs> do you generally think about technology as empowering humanity overcoming it or threatening it or some other relationship to tech to uh, between humanity and technology i think it's all at once well, maybe uh, at least of all overcoming. I don't see like the AI overlord knocking on our door anytime soon. Uh, I'm not transhumanist. I'm I'm a fervently human humanist. I just uh, finished reading uh, Harari's uh, Homo Deus, and oh, yeah. uh, it took me it took me a couple of weeks. But it uh, takes you know, a while. I'm, and oh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I, I, like wow, humanist is a, is a, is a, a term he uses critically, and then no, no, I'm I'm proud to be a humanist, and uh, you know the negative term would be anthropocentrist, like putting the human in the center and disregarding all non-human entities. But you know, I can only think from my own species perspective, and I can still care about animals, etc. But I'm humanist. I believe that there is something distinct, distinctive about humans that we need to keep alive, and uh, so this is our responsibility that we have as humans. And so it's it's, but it is empowering, of course, because it you know, it connects us. It makes uh, like technology. It connects all of us. It makes information accessible. It kind of. You know, on so many ways, you know, the democratization <laughs> aspect is real. Mm-hmm. So it is empowering. Uh, it is uh, threatening, of course, because if, if technology, you know, the whole fake news and, 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 the, and the deep fakes, etc., that's really threatening. Although immediately in uh, the context of upcoming elections, and even in democratic big countries. <laughs> and, uh, and so it is threatening in many ways and uh, overcoming it is the least, I'd say. So, but it has always been that, you know, I mean, you know, nuclear 
weapons, nuclear power has already threatened us. So I love what you said be. about sort of being a proud humanist, because I feel like <laughs> it's funny to me since I am I am vegan. I've been vegan for 22 years, so yeah. I am very much concerned with animal welfare. I uh, yeah. I want there to be concern for all yeah. living things, oh, and I oh, want oh, yeah. you know absolutely. But I do agree with you. I completely think that there's something special about humanity and as a human that may be a, a biased perspective but i think that it makes sense in the context of human creation of technology to protect that which is human uh, yeah, as we no, develop technology well i mean first of all being a humanist doesn't mean that you cannot or should not be vegetarian or vegan yeah. i mean i'm i'm like 95 percent vegetarian <laughs> or 99 percent vegetarian so so one is like your you call it epistemological mm -hmm. perspective like what can you know i can only know what humans know and what humans feel i cannot right. certainly know what animals feel i have a lot of indications that they don't like to suffer they probably right. don't want to be killed and kept in you know in stables etc and so that's why i don't eat them that's you know from an epistemological restriction that i have as human and the other thing is do i think they have rights and i think they do have rights so in that way i'm not a humanist so i think one of the biggest achievements is that like uh, 240 you know, years ago, uh, when the Enlightenment set in, you know, that movement, that philosophical movement uh, in Europe by Immanuel Kant, etc., where he said, hey, people, dare to use your own mind. It was like a wake-up call, because until then we have been caught as, you know, the slaves of God. Or I mean, that's, I'm sorry, I don't want to, you know, offend anyone, but we didn't really make an effort to, to, to explore the world because we thought every, everything was determined by God. So by stepping out of this dependency and using our own brains, we liberated ourselves from the shackles of religion or other authorities. And so now, are we just, you know, taking it too far? Have we used our brains so far that we're eventually creating machines that are smarter than us and they're kind of imposing their decisions again upon us and not just imposing their decisions upon us, but also imposing decisions that are uh, uh, about equally intransparent as God's decision if you look at certain algorithms. Right. <laughs> what is this like? Are we reverting? Are we going back into places of darkness? Yeah. That's a really That's interesting why. way to frame that. <laughs> uh, that it that it takes the um, the human agency out of of the framework. Exactly, right? and I think it's a duty. We cannot delegate our responsibility to machines. We can use machines to improve our you know um, health and our our well being, etc., to improve the world. But we cannot entirely delegate responsibility to machines, especially not if we don't fully understand them, and if we cannot revert or intervene at any point in time. When you think about humanity and the human condition and what it means to be human, what what do you feel like is the most uniquely human trait? Or what do, what do you kind of come back to when you think about humanity as the thing that really characterizes human experience or, or what it means to be human? I know I'm totally out of fashion with that, but I'm a, I'm a bit of a Kantian, so I think about free will and, and responsibility, you know, the ability to take on responsibility and to kind of decide how we want to act and then be held accountable for how we acted, which, you know, the, the whole agency thing, mm -hmm. which is also what sets us apart from animals. You know, I can't hold a, a dog to account when he sits on the couch. I mean, he, he wouldn't understand why. So, and, and as Hans Jonas, like a German-US philosopher said, something like, by having this responsibility, we need to keep this responsibility alive and we must never extinguish the human species because extinguishing the human species would mean to extinguish responsibility from this world. Because when, you know, when humanity is gone, or if we, you know, eradicate us, he wrote that in light of the nuclear threats, you know, in the 70s, etc., where suddenly you had the potential to erase all of humanity with, a, you know, a few nuclear bombs or like a significant part. He said, that's not okay. We need to uh, preserve our species because we are the only ones who are capable of responsibility. And, <laughs> and, and this gives us the responsibility to keep ourselves alive or like preserve ourselves. And I, I really like Jonas in that regard, even though he's considered very 
luddite or like anti-tech and uh, yeah that's okay we've had people who describe themselves as tech abolitionists on this show oh, so. okay okay <laughs> so I'm, I'm relatively mild you're I'm being moderate. right in line uh <laughs> okay. not, you, not in line i'm moderate <laughs> moderate we'll we'll uh, yeah. we'll go with that when you think about how tech plays into scaling the possible futures for humanity. I, I think, you know, the way I think about it, and I just want to frame this up, is that there are ways that we could build toward the best futures for all of humanity, and mm -hmm. there are ways that we could build toward the worst futures for all mm -hmm. of humanity. And of course, I feel like, you know, we're always doing a little bit of both, and I hope that we're always trying to aim for the good side. Um, but what we have to characterize mm -hmm. what that means, right? What, how do we steer toward the best futures with tech? So in your mm -hmm. mind, how do you think, or what do you think we can do in culture and in business, in organizations to, to stand a better chance of bringing about the best futures mm -hmm. with tech for humanity? I think we have a great chance again by connecting the dots. So uh, after a long you know, debate, etc., the, the United Nations have finally established those 17 sustainable development goals, which mm -hmm. is kind of a global consensus. And, and that's not just about CO2 emissions, but that covers a wide range of goals that are desirable uh, under the headline, leave no one behind. So democratizing, <laughs> leave no one behind. Yeah. But in the real, in the real sense of the word, basically. And so, why not subject AI or technological development to those standards? Also, if we have a globally acknowledged framework, of course, with flaws and trade-offs, etc. But instead of reinventing the wheel and saying, like, you know, what kind of future do we want, and then what can technology do in that future, like. Oh, we have already a vision of the future we want or what we have to avoid and what we want to achieve with these uh, SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals. Why not integrate the whole tech discussion into this framework and maybe add some tech-specific challenges that I mentioned? Not everything fits under these Sustainable Development Goals, but that's what I mean. Don't reinvent the wheel. I mean, uh, tech is just a means to an end. And if, if, the, if the end is sustainable development, make tech a means to achieve this end and measure it based on how it contributes to achieving those goals. That makes sense. And I talk about that myself on a regular basis about using the SDGs as a yeah. roadmap for development and bringing AI and emerging technology discussions in alignment with yes. that roadmap. And what's interesting yes. to me about that too is that it gives plenty of commercializable opportunities. You know, you talked earlier mm -hmm. about you can't just exactly. you can't just have this conversation in a vacuum, not no. acknowledging no. that corporations no. want to make money, and 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 yes. you know, there's no reason they why there isn't an incentive to make money. Yeah. There's plenty of incentive within mm -hmm. those SDGs uh, when uh, when technology is applied to them or outside of technology applications exactly. to make money. Yes, <laughs> in yes, alignment I think with I outcomes. I see synergies. I yeah. I see synergies, but I also see red flags, like, mm. or, I mean, but it's also that sometimes you think like, oh, technology, you know, like deep fakes, you couldn't say they violate, violate the sustainable development goals. So you cannot answer all the, the questions about tech with the sustainable development goals. I mean, sure. the, the question about deep fakes, it's just, it's another question. It's just a purely ethical question. It's just, I say AI for nonsense or AI for bad or tech for evil, <laughs> however you want to call it. And that's a, a, an entirely separate discussion that we also need to lead. But a lot of it can be aligned or like judged based on the contribution of the sustainable development goals. I think yeah. you just coined the hashtag AI for nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> Happy to. <laughs> what um, if if companies, if if people are watching uh, and they're representatives of corporations or organizations, and they want to take actionable steps to bring their mm -hmm. work better in line? Uh, you mentioned the Sustainable Development Goals. Mm -hmm. uh, so are there other actionable steps or, or kind of guidelines that you can recommend for for organizations and individuals to, to bring their work in line with with these principles I mean there's a, a, a like overwhelming amount of uh, you know voluntary standards industry specific or regional standards etc you know it really uh, depends on you know where your business is located and what you do etc but I think uh, very important is always talking about participation participatory machine learning you know take your stakeholders on board see who is affected by your 
business and you know take them on board have a discussion take your critics on board don't corrupt them take them on board listen to them <laughs> and 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 so those multi-stakeholder uh, approaches i know they have their own risks of uh, inequality and and structural injustice etc but you're certainly doing better by talking to your stakeholders than by not right. talking so stakeholder approaches yeah. Right. Yeah. It's come up a few times on the show that we've talked about the development of technologies or of solutions without involving communities that are going to be yeah. affected by those solutions yeah. is a completely silly and wrongheaded approach. Uh, yep. But yeah, and, and, and you're right that sometimes involving those communities can actually lead to problematic work as well. But it's it's got to be better in general. It's it's got to be the the better approach. So that's great. Exactly. Invite your stakeholders and invite exactly. the communities that are affected. Exactly. Uh, that's wonderful. Also, uh, Chris Buehler uh, <laughs> coined the uh, hashtag here: AI for nonsense invented by Dorothea Bauer. So there you go. <laughs> Thanks. Well, hey, I invented nonsense. I mean, I feel like that's almost the Twitter character limit right there. So. <laughs> <laughs> just all we can ever tweet is just that hashtag. <laughs> Where can people find your work if they want to follow along? I'm sure that you've got a lot of new fans after this show. So where can they track you? Well, I'm mostly active on Twitter, as you know. That's where I kind of spend too much time, you could say. But I also gain a lot by you know, being up, uh, up to date all the time with the debates. Twitter, LinkedIn, I have a website that's in urgent need of a revision. You can look at it, but don't judge me based on my website. <laughs> please <laughs> and that's uh barconsulting.ch is that right yeah that would okay. be one but don't don't repeat it just you know it's easy to find your social media <laughs> i need to revise it but uh yeah fair enough i always figure it's the the cobbler's kids you know that don't have shoes that's the whole thing <laughs> that's totally me. undermining my credibility <laughs> no i get it it's totally where i'm at too uh, Dorothea, okay. thanks so much for being on the show. I know uh, there were there were a lot of comments that I didn't read aloud. It was uh, a lot of people just going, yay, yay. <laughs> they were so excited okay. to have you on. Great. So thank you for being here. It's a really wonderful conversation. I really appreciate what you're doing out there to, to bring together these different types of conversations and these different holistic views and make sure that corporate discussions and organizational discussions are all happening in, in alignment with one another. So thank you so much for that. Thanks so much for having me. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks. You too. <laughs> Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Tech Humanist Show. You can find more information about the show's guests and links to their projects at thetechhumanist.com, where you can also find more episodes. Or you can subscribe at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kate O'Neill. Join me next time for more about how data and technology shape the human experience.